We had this morning a very interesting and controversial subject, that of the gift of tongues, and it's the sort of uh, subject in which you can uh, tear out more snakes than you can kill in 45 minutes, and therefore I want to uh, give you a chance to ask questions. We've never done this before, but there's no real reason why we can't do this in a morning worship service, our, our goal is to instruct and uh, to use this time together as a body of believers to learn together how to make visible the invisible Christ in the world. And therefore, it's appropriate, I think, that uh, you ask questions. If you, if questions are raised in the course of uh, our study of 1 Corinthians 14. So my function is to teach for about 35 minutes or so, and yours is to listen. And uh, if you get through before I do, you're free to leave. But uh, if you're still around at the end of, uh, of our time of instruction, then feel free to ask questions. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 14. I want you to keep in mind, as we look at this passage, that uh, the ultimate test of any experience is truth. What does the Scripture have to say? And the test of any experience is not uh, how significant it is or how how big it seems to be, or the number of people that it touches, or the apparent power that it possesses. The real test of any experience is the test of truth. Is it found in Scripture? And that's our goal this morning, to determine if the current expression of tongues in the charismatic movement is the biblical gift of tongues. A number of years ago, I... Uh, I was speaking at a Young Life conference at uh, Woodley's Conference Grounds in, in California. And after I finished speaking, a woman approached me, a very gracious elderly woman, and, and asked me if I spoke in tongues. And it happened to be a time in my life when I was trying to think this uh, issue through, and it was sort of embarrassing to me. I didn't know quite how to respond, and I, but I said no. And there was a great look of discouragement that passed across her face, which discouraged me even more, because I was feeling at the time that perhaps there should be something more to my Christian life than I was experiencing. I had talked to a number of people who were in the charismatic movement, and uh, there seemed to be something that uh, they possessed that I didn't have, and, and I wanted everything that God had promised, and so I set myself to study the scriptures to determine if these things were so. And what we're, what we'll discuss this morning is largely the result of, of that study. Now let's look at 1 Corinthians 14 together. This is one of those passages where it's easy to, uh, lose sight of the forest because of the trees. Uh, we can get lost in the details and miss the overview. There are really only two things that Paul is telling us in this, in this passage. He first wants to establish the relative place of tongues and prophecy. Which has the priority, prophecy or tongues? And that particular issue is discussed in the first 19 verses. And then in verses 20 through 25, he discusses the purpose of tongues, the purpose of both tongues and prophecy. So those are the two issues that we want to look at this morning in this chapter. Let's begin first with Paul's discussion of the place of tongues in the first 19 verses. 
Paul writes, pursue love. Now that's the phrase that joins chapter 14 to what precedes it. As you know from Steve's very fine exposition of chapter 13, the goal of all instruction is love. Love, as we saw from chapter 13, is that intention on our part to reach outside of ourselves. Instead of being preoccupied with ourselves and uh, thinking of all of life in terms of what what profits me, and thinking of my need to be ministered to, it's a desire to reach outside of ourselves to others and begin to minister to their needs. That's love. And Paul says that everything in the church ought to be devoted to that end. Pursue love. And earnestly desire spiritual gifts because it's the expression of these gifts that brings about a mature body and makes possible the expression of love to the world outside. But especially, Paul says, that you may prophesy. Now this phrase sets the pace for the rest of this chapter. Because in Paul's mind, the greatest gift is prophecy. It takes precedence over any other gift. Now, as we've seen, the gift of prophecy is not the gift of preaching. The two are not, uh, not synonymous. The gift of prophecy was to involve the capacity to receive direct revelation from God and declare that revelation to God's people. And accompanying that revelation was the ability to make predictions, to predict the future with 100% accuracy. Now, we may define prophecy as preaching if we want to, but to do so, really, is to uh, disregard the definition of prophecy that's given to us in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, for that matter, in both portions of our Bible, prophets were people who received direct revelation through visions and dreams and uh, through divine utterances. The word of the Lord came unto me, the prophets would say, and they would speak directly from God. That's the gift of prophecy. And Paul says that's the greater gift. Now, as we believe, this gift is no longer in existence in the church. It isn't necessary. Because we have today the word of the prophets. It's the Old and New Testament, our Bible. So this gift today would be represented by those gifts that involve the exposition of the word of God to God's people. Because it's the word that builds people up. That's the foundational uh, gift. That's what makes possible an understanding of God's revelation to us upon which everything is, is based. And so Paul says, earnestly desire the expression of gifts, but especially those gifts that involve the proclamation of God's word. And then he explains in verses 2 through 5. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Here he contrasts the gift, the gift of tongues and prophecy. And prophecy, he says, is the greater gift because it's addressed to men. It's the mean by, a means by which men and women are edified, that is, they are built up, they grow in their relationship to God, and they are strengthened. That's what the word uh, exhortation means. They're given strength to live life as God intended us to live it in the world, and they're consoled. That's a word throughout the New Testament that always refers to comfort given to the bereaved. So it's the proclamation of the word that strengthens you and encourages you and comforts you in time of need. 
prophecy is addressed to men. But the gift of tongues, he says, is addressed to God. It's not preaching. It's not proclamation. It doesn't involve the uh, delivery of a message to someone within the body of Christ. It's, a, it's praise, not preaching. Praise addressed to God. And secondly, in verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. And here again, he contrasts the two gifts. If you speak in a tongue, a byproduct of the exercise of any gift is that you yourself are blessed and encouraged and strengthened because of it. It has the function of edifying you. But prophecy edifies the church. And you see, Paul's greatest concern is that we grow up to full maturity inside. And so Paul's point is that prophecy is the greater gift. Verse 5, Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. Now you see, it's clear that the early church spoke in tongues and that they translated those tongues. And when that translation was made, it had the effect of edifying the church to some extent. But Paul's point is that prophecy or proclamation of the word is the far greater gift because that's the gift that communicates clearly the wisdom of God, teaches us the mysteries of God, those secrets of life that enable us to live life as God intended uh, them to be lived. It's the word that teaches us how to cope with, with the problems that we face in our homes and in our businesses, and in our schools, on the job, wherever we are. Now Paul illustrates in verses 6 through 11 through a series of very helpful uh, analogies and uh, it's so self-evident it hardly needs to be uh, commented on. Paul says, Now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what shall it profit you? Unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching. In other words, there has to be a clear proclamation, an understandable, meaningful proclamation of the Word of God. And then he illustrates first from uh, musical instruments. Even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in tone, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? Now, that's a helpful illustration. If I uh, uh, come in this morning and announce that I'm going to play the Brandenburg uh, Concerto on the piano here, and I begin to bang on the keys, you would sit out there and shake your head and say, no, that's not Bach. That's got to be something else. Uh, because I can't play the piano. I can't... Uh, there wouldn't be any harmony or meaning to the music. It would all be uh, indistinct notes and discords. And so you see what Paul is saying. There has to be some meaningful relationship of notes and chords, something that corresponds to something that's known before there is uh, there's communication. And secondly, in verse 8, if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? If the bugler uh, in an army camp plays an indistinct uh, note, he uh, blows it, so to speak. If he uh, plays reveille instead of charge and confuses the army, then he's missed his call. The notes have to be distinct, clear, meaningful. And then thirdly, in verse 10, there are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be to the one who speaks a barbarian. And the one who speaks will be a barbarian, uh, barbarian to me. The Greeks were uh, linguistic snobs and they thought that anyone who didn't speak Greek was a barbarian. 
And uh, to them, all other languages sounded like bar, 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 and so they called them barbarians. Our, our word barbarian actually comes from that Greek word. Uh, their languages were unintelligible to the Greeks. And uh, Paul's point again is well taken. If I speak French or German or some other language to you, and you don't know that language, then it doesn't mean anything. Uh, Carolyn and I are going to Germany in a couple of months, as you know. I should point out that we are coming back. The, uh, I was a little shocked when I saw the bulletin, and it said that the church was sending the ropers to Germany, but I understand you do plan to bring us back. But uh, when I get over there, I don't know German. Someone's going to have to translate for me. Other words, uh, otherwise, I'll be a barbarian to them. They won't understand. That's Paul's point. Our proclamation of the word ought to be clear. It ought to be meaningful. It ought to be understandable. And therefore, prophecy, he says, is the greater gift because it communicates most clearly those truths that God wants us to know. Whereas, one who speaks in a tongue is not understood. Then in verses 12 through 19, he makes application of this principle. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts. And this was a characteristic of the church in Corinth. They wanted to see the expression of spiritual gifts. Paul puts it in chapter 1. You do not come behind in any spiritual gift. Since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. That is, employ those gifts that are based upon proclamation, meaningful proclamation of the Word of God. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, and my spirit prays, and my spirit prays that my mind is unfruitful, what is the outcome then? I shall pray with the spirit, and I shall pray with the mind also. I shall sing with the spirit, and I shall sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say amen at your giving of thanks? Since he does not know what you're saying. That is, he can't make another's prayer his own because he doesn't know when he comes to the end of the prayer. Apparently, in those days, one could pray in tongues, address praise to God in this way. It's a thing in tongues, and thus praise God in this tongue. And Paul's point is that the ungifted man, the man who doesn't understand, has no way of entering into your experience. He doesn't even know when you come to the end of your prayer so he can say, Amen. And then in verse 18, Paul says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, that is, when the church is gathered, I desire to speak five words with my mind that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. You see, from the very beginning of church life, their experience together was based upon the apostles' doctrine, that is, the teaching of the apostles. And that's why when we gather on Sunday morning as a body of believers, we study the Word. That's the apostles' teaching. It's the basis of everything. And Paul says, we ought to put the priority where it needs to be placed, that is, upon those gifts which make clear the Word of God. And Paul's point is easily seen. Prophecy, therefore, is a greater gift than time. Now, that's the first point that he wants to make. The place, the relative place of prophecy in tongues. Then in verses 20 through 25, he establishes the purpose of both gifts. Brethren, Paul says, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be based, but in your children, in your thinking, be mature. 
In other words, we ought not to be childish. We need to grow up to maturity. We ought not to be naive. We shouldn't take anyone's word for anything. We ought to think clearly through the implications of what people are saying and ground our thoughts upon the Word of God. And that's what Paul is doing in verse 21. He quotes the Old Testament, which is the Scriptures to them, and says, In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people. And even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. For prophecy is not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Now, if you have a New American Standard translation in your hand, you'll see that the phrase, for a sign, the second phrase, for a sign, is in italic, which means that it was not, those particular words don't occur in the Greek text. The translators placed them there in our translations in order to try to make them more meaningful, but I think they're mistaken in this case. The verse ought to read, so then tongues are a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Prophecy is not a sign. It's simply directed toward believers. Whereas, tongue, the gift of tongue, is a sign to unbelievers. If therefore the whole church should assemble together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Now this passage is perhaps, it's a very difficult passage. It's so difficult that some translators have even changed the text. If you've read uh, J.D. Phillips' Uh, letters to young churches lately, you'll know that without any textual basis for it, he changes uh, verse 22, simply rewrites it, and some portions of verse 23. But I think we need to take the text exactly as it stands, because it makes a great deal of sense if we understand it properly. I want you to note, first of all, that the word that's translated strange tongues in 21 is simply the word that was used all over the Greek world for a foreign language. It doesn't mean strange tongue. It means someone who speaks in a foreign language. Uh, it's the Greek word heteroglossos. Heteros just means another, of a different kind. In other words, glossos means a tongue. So it's a language of a different kind. It's the term that the Greek translators of the Old Testament use in Psalm 114.1 for Egyptian, the Egyptian language. So it doesn't mean a strange tongue. It means a foreign language. Paul quotes Isaiah 28, in which this phrase is found, as an indication that the gift of tongue is a sign for unbelievers. Now let's see what he means. If you'd like, you can turn back to Isaiah 28, but it's not necessary. In that particular chapter, Isaiah, who wrote in the 8th century, is predicting eighth century before Christ, is predicting the Assyrian conquest. He's been uh, predicting judgment against the nation of Israel for a long period of time, and no one has been listening. Uh, he has uh, pointed out their idolatry and their rejection of God's plan for, their, for the nation, and they have turned their back upon God. 
And so Isaiah predicts that judgment is coming. The Assyrians are going to come. They're knocking at the door. And they were. It's a matter of years before the, the Assyrian Empire conquered Israel and for a long period of time they were subject to that, that Gentile Empire. Isaiah's point is that when you hear foreign languages spoken in the streets of Jerusalem, then you'll know that God has judged you. God is no longer dealing specifically with the nation of Israel. He now is doing something with a Gentile nation. That's his point. When they heard, uh, we call the language today Akkadian, the Assyrian language being spoken in the street, then know that God is at work within the nation, doing something, judging it. Now, Paul quotes that passage in Ephesians, and he applies it to their experience. This tongues is still a sign. It was a sign that foreign language spoken in the streets of Jerusalem in the 8th century was an indication that God was judging his people. And when this language was spoken in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, it was a sign to Israel that God was judging his people. He was reaching out beyond the Jews and no longer exclusively dealing with Israel. He now was going out to the Gentile nation. And that's why Paul says it's a sign. That's his purpose. Whenever unbelieving Jews heard a tongue, a foreign language, spoken in the city, they would know that they were under the judgment of God. Now let's turn back to the second chapter of Acts. And I would like to have you look at this passage. There are very few passages in the New Testament that discuss the gift of tongues. The subject is taken up in three places in the book of Acts, in Acts 2 and 10 and 19, and then only in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. You don't find any references any place else in the New Testament. And uh, there is one reference in the 16th chapter of Mark, but that passage probably should not be in our, our Bible. Most people agree that the, that the text is probably an error there that, uh, according to the oldest and the best manuscripts, that section from verse 10 on through the end of Mark doesn't belong in the Bible. And even if it does, there are some real problems there because it not only predicts the coming of the gift of tongues, but it also says that disciples would be able to drink poison and suffer no harm and handle snakes and other things which uh, uh, raise some, some additional problems. The first unquestioned reference to the gift of tongues is here in Acts 2. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. This would be approximately a week after Jesus' ascension, very shortly after the Lord ascended to heaven. And the they here refers not to the eleven disciples or apostles, but the 120 who were gathered together to wait uh, the pouring out of the Spirit. You'll remember that uh, before Jesus ascended, he promised the apostles that God would pour out his Spirit from on high. The promise of the Father would come, and they were to wait in Jerusalem until they received that promise. This was in uh, response to the prediction that the, that the prophets had made that the Messianic era, the time when, when Messiah would rule in his kingdom, would uh, be signified by the pouring out of the Spirit of God. And so Jesus had predicted it, and on this day, on the day of Pentecost, it occurred. They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, the main thing to be noticed here is the fact that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, that's an experience that no one, that no one can see or feel. It's not experiential. The filling of the Spirit or the coming of the Spirit to indwell his people is something that can't be observed. And so, what God did for these early disciples is give them an audio-visual aid. First, there was an auditory phenomenon. There was the wind blowing. And the Greek term for wind, pneuma, is the same word for spirit. So it was a very appropriate symbol. The wind came blowing through the house and it filled the entire house as a symbol of the coming of the wind of God, the spirit of God. Secondly, um, there was a tongue of fire which then distributed itself over the heads of all of those who were present. In other words, every individual in the room had a, a small tongue of fire over his head which illustrated the fact that the wind of God now filled each individual. And this is in response, again, or in fulfillment of the prediction that the prophets had made that when the Messiah came, the Spirit of God would be poured out on all flesh. So there is the wind picturing the Spirit coming and filling the house, and then the division of the tongue into in the units, each dwelling over the head of each, uh, resting on the head of each individual there, depicting individual indwelling of the Spirit of God. Now that was simply a visual, uh, audible aid to faith, depicting the filling of the Spirit. Secondly, they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, that is, when they began to speak in tongues, the multitudes came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. The word that uh, Luke uses here for language is the word from which we get our term dialect. They're speaking in various dialects, known foreign languages. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? The Galileans, the people who lived in the northern part of, of Israel at that time, spoke Aramaic. They may have spoken some Greek. Certainly most of the disciples did, so they were bilingual. But they would not have known all of these languages which uh, they were speaking. And so they were amazed. And how is it, they say, that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, those were all regions off to the east of Palestine, Judea, which is Palestine itself, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia. These were all regions in what, what is today Turkey, Asia Minor, as it, as it was called then. Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, that would be North Africa, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own Tongue, and here's the word glossi, glossi, that's found in 1 Corinthians 14, in our own tongue, or languages, or dialects, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? 
Now, I think it's clear, if we simply read this passage and take it at face value, that the tongues which were spoken on the day of Pentecost were known foreign languages. This is not an outbreak of ecstatic utterances or angel languages. This was the language of, of humans. Known foreign languages. Which were actually designated by name. They were speaking Median, Parthian, and some form of Arabic, the Arabic language. And uh, languages that were susceptible to linguistic analysis, to grammar, syntax. It was a language, a recognizable language. And they were amazed. Because these people were Galileans. They normally spoke Aramaic. How could they speak these languages? We don't know how many languages were represented. There are 15 different language families given here, but there may have been more languages represented. And they were amazed. But the real question is, what does it mean? They saw that there was some spiritual significance to this event. What was the significance of this event? You see, the rabbis of that day taught that the law was offered to all nations. Everyone had a chance to receive the oracles of God. But only the Jews responded. And therefore, Hebrew was the only language through which God's revelation could be given. The law was revealed in Hebrew, from Mount Sinai, some form of Hebrew. And uh, they believed this was the only uh, acceptable language for expressing the truth of God. Hebrew was spoken in their, in their synagogue. Whenever they discussed, whenever the rabbis met to discuss religious issues, they did so in Hebrew. They didn't speak the language of the country from which they came. They might live in, in Arabia, or they might live in, in Rome, but they didn't discuss religious matters in Latin or in Arabic. They discussed it in Hebrew. And now, you see, God is speaking through any language to all people. And they say, what does this mean? Well, Peter answers in verse 14, but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, that is, you Jews who are gathered here in Pentecost, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. That is, it's only nine o'clock in the morning, and people normally don't get drunk at, at nine in the morning. But, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And here he quotes from the second chapter of Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit upon all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And then he continues to quote Joel. And so we get to verse 21, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's two statements that uh, Peter is trying to make. The first is found in verse 17, and the second in verse 21. I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind. And in verse 21, it shall be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see what he's saying? Joel predicted. But the time was coming when God would not be dealing exclusively with Israel, but he would pour out his Spirit upon all flesh. And what better way to illustrate that truth than through the gift of time? 
Where before revelation was given exclusively in the Hebrew language, now men were praising God in every language under the sun as a sign that God now is reaching out beyond the nation of Israel to gather in the Gentiles. And that's why Peter said, and Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, tongues are a sign to unbelievers. We go through Acts, we come to chapter 10, Paul goes over to Caesarea, to Corinna, who is a Gentile, and he has along with him a number of Jews from Jerusalem, and he preaches the gospel to Cornelius, and Cornelius believes, and as far as we know, that's the first instance where a Gentile is accepted into the family of God on this basis, into the church. The Holy Spirit fills Cornelius, and he begins to speak in tongues, and all of these Jews who are with him say, this is what we saw before. God is reaching out to the Gentiles. How can we, we, we refuse water for baptism? When God is including the Gentiles into his, into his people, the Gentiles are chosen as well as the Jews. You see what he's saying? Tongues are a sign to unbelieving Jews that God is at work among his people. Now let's go back to 1 Corinthians 14. Paul says in verse 22, So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is not to unbelievers but to those who believe. Prophecy is designed to build up and encourage and stabilize the people of God, whereas the gift of tongues has an exclusive and a specific purpose in God's plan, and that is to indicate to the Jewish nation that God is reaching out beyond that nation to enfold the Gentiles. So what we've seen from these passages is that, first of all, the gift of tongues is a known foreign language, a language that uh, you could subject to any sort of linguistic analysis and you'd find verbs and nouns and adjectives and those sorts of things that would be found somewhere on the face of the earth and it would be translatable. It was not the gift of learning a language easily. It was a supernatural gift. These men were able to speak a known foreign language that they had never spoken before. And along with it, there would be the gift of interpretation or translation, which would make that language known to people who did not ordinarily know that language. And secondly, it was a sign to unbelieving Jews that God was judging the nation of Israel. So it is not in these passages, not in Acts, nor is it in 1 Corinthians 12 or 14, nor any other place in the New Testament, considered to be essential for our growth in Christ. It's never commanded in Scripture. You won't find any passage anywhere in the New Testament that commands you to speak in tongues. If it were essential to our sanctification, that truth would be written large on every page. We're told to pray. We're told to walk by faith. We're told to, to uh, fellowship with one another and to draw strength from one another. We're told to witness. Everything that God wants us to know, we're clearly told, but not once, not one place, Anywhere in the Word of God is an individual soul to seek the gift of God or to pray for it. It's not commanded. And secondly, more significant to me is the fact that in the list of credentials or criteria for elders, it's not mentioned. Presumably an elder is one of the most mature men in the body of Christ. He's to be a good family man, to love his husband 
love his wife and love his children. And uh, he's to be without reproach. And he's to be a loving, giving, serving man. But nowhere is he commanded, you see, to speak in tongues. Now, the current manifestation of tongues, as far as I'm concerned, is not the biblical gift of tongues. It's not a known foreign language. It's an ecstatic utterance. It's not susceptible to any normal linguistic uh, rules. There's no rules of grammar or syntax that are operative there. It tends to be the, the repetition of, of syllables, and uh, linguists have examined it carefully and have found no indication that it's a language known anywhere on the face of the earth. There's a man, uh, his name is William Samarin, who is a professor of linguistics at the University of Toronto, who has tape-recorded numerous uh, uh, experiences, tongues experiences. And uh, he writes, over a period of five years, I have taken part in meetings in Italy, Holland, Jamaica, Canada, and, and the United States. I have observed old-fashioned Pentecostals and Neo-Pentecostals. I have been in small meetings in private homes as well as in mammoth public meetings. I have seen such different cultural settings as are found among the Puerto Ricans of the Bronx, the snake handlers of the Appalachians, and the Russian, Russian Mollicans of Los Angeles. I have interviewed tongue speakers and tape-recorded and analyzed countless samples of tongues. In every case, Glossolalia turns out to be linguistic nonsense. In spite of superficial similarities, glossolalia is fundamentally not language. So it's not a foreign language. It doesn't fit the specification. Nor is it a sign. Uh, it's not used as a sign to unbelieving Israelites that the kingdom of God has come and that the Gentiles are included. It may be used to convey a message to someone in the congregation and simply to give praise to God, but it's not used as a sign. So it's my conviction that the current expression of glossolalia within the charismatic movement is not the gift of tongues, the biblical gift of tongues. Now these people are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we need to love them as brothers and sisters in Christ. But we also need to evaluate their experience on the basis of the word, regardless of what benefits or what profit they say may come from the experience. Their uh, response is always uh, seems to be, well, but 1 Corinthians 14 is a different gift. That's the gift of ecstatic utterance, whereas in, in Acts 2 it's the gift of, of a foreign language. But the terms are the same. The term uh, glossate for tongue. It's the same term in 1 Corinthians 14 as in Acts 2. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that it's a sign to unbelievers, just as we saw in, in Acts 2. So it is not, in my opinion, the biblical gift of time. Well, the question then is, what is it? Is it demonic? Is it something destructive or harmful? Should it be encouraged? What is it? Well, it's my belief that it is it's simply a psychological phenomenon that can be reproduced even outside the system too. It may surprise you to know that Muslims speak in tongues if we define tongues as ecstatic utterances. Tibetan monks 
speaking tongues. Many East African religions uh, employ ecstasy. Uh, Joseph Smith taught his early followers to repeat nonsensical, nonsensical syllables in order to, uh, uh, to produce static utterance. Eskimos and their religion use ecstasy. A widespread phenomenon. Plato and his discourses uh, philosophizes on the meaning of these ecstatic utterances that came to the prophets of his time. So it's something that can be reproduced psychologically or physiologically. Apparently, whenever we yield up to the conscious control of our speech centers, we're able to give utterance to uh, uh, syllables, certain syllables, which we may think represent the biblical gift of tongues. And there may be a, a spirit of euphoria and peace, well-being that comes from it, because it does seem to accompany the experience. But it's not the biblical gift of tongues. And for myself, I do not think that we need to reject or withdraw from our charismatic brethren. I think we need to accept them fully and, and love them. And there's some gracious, gracious, godly, charismatic people in our community who must come to appreciate deeply and love. But I think, honestly, we need to face the fact that the gift of tongues, as they employ it, is not the biblical gift. And help them to see that from the scriptures. Because, I think, in some cases, the result of employing ecstasy and thinking that it is the gift of God may keep them from growing up to full maturity in Christ. You know, as I read the scriptures, I, I am more and more convinced that God is not at all interested in us being in a euphoric state all the time. Someone has well pointed out that the spirit which God has given to us is not a jolly spirit. He's a holy spirit. If God's concerned that we be holy and righteous, not jolly. Dear old A.W. Tozer, who is my patron saint, wrote, You may march to Zion at times to the beat of the band, but at other times you just slog along. And he's right. There are times when your Christian experience is downright fun and exciting. And you can be genuinely euphoric about the whole thing. But there are other times when life is tough. And uh, your bones may ache or your heart may ache. It's not God's intention that you be free from pain either physically or, or emotionally. If God didn't spare his own son from pain, why should he spare us? I find that life is just hard. And if I'm looking for some experience that uh, is going to buoy me up and make me feel euphoric, I'm looking for the wrong thing. What Paul says to do is to hold fast to the head. Turn to Colossians, second chapter, verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on vision he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from him from whom the, the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. You want to grow up? And Paul says you don't grow up through experiences that you have, visions and dreams, however productive they may seem at the moment. That's not how you grow to maturity. The way to grow up, Paul says, 
It's a hold fast to the head. That is, lay fast to uh, lay hold of what you already have. See, most of us think from time to time that we need something more. There's something missing in my Christian life, so we want something more. Some experience, some vision, some dream, some sight of the Lord himself. Or some experience of speaking in tongues, or some ecstatic utterance, whatever it may be. And that's the something more that will give me what I'm looking for. But Paul says, you don't need anything more. You already have everything that you need. You have the Lord Jesus. In him, all the fullness of the Godhead is found bodily. That is, it resides in him. And you are complete in him. This is the head of all principality and power. He's already demonstrated his authority over every human ill and and every problem that we face, and over satanic forces, and everything that could possibly give us grief. And so when times get tough, Paul says, take hold of him. If you need love for someone in your family who's not very loving, say, Lord, grant me love. And then thank him for it. When you run out of patience with your children, and you're ready to smack them one in the wrong place, you say, Lord, grant me patience. And thank him for it. Or where you need purity of mind. And you're having trouble with lustful thoughts. Say, Lord Jesus, grant to me your purity. Turn my thoughts from these things. And thank him for it. Just believe what you already have and start acting upon it. And Paul says, that's how we grow up in the purity. Not through some experience, but through laying hold, appropriating what Jesus is to you. What he is to all of us. I said last week, it's like those, uh, the week before last, it's like those San Francisco cable cars. You just take another grip on the cable. And he becomes the power for living life as God intended us to be lived. Paul says, you are complete in him. Uh, we have maybe five minutes for questions, if I raised any. Feel free to uh, challenge anything that's said, or to ask for clarification. Yeah, Nancy. No, I think it would be uh, Nancy's question was: it was a sign in Jerusalem. Why would it be used in Corinth? For the same reason, there were synagogues there in Corinth, and it would be a sign to unbelieving Jews in Corinth that God was at work among the Gentiles. It wouldn't be different, really. Well, there are two classes of people that were coming into the church. He calls them ungifted, which apparently were inquirers. There were people who were not yet Christians, but they were on the way, and they were coming to learn more. There were also unbelievers in the church, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. And uh, apparently the gifts of tongues would be used there as a sign to those unbelieving Jews sitting in the assembly that God was judging the Jews and reaching out to his impact. I think so. That would be equivalent to praying in tongues or singing in tongues. That is, you release conscious control of your mind and the Spirit of God then prays through you. But I think, again, to be consistent, the prayer would be a known foreign language. It wouldn't be gibberish. It wouldn't be uh, ecstasy. It would be a known foreign language. But you would lose control of your mind. Again, it would be for a sign to unbelievers to come into the assembly and they're turn to God because of that, or at least they realize that God is judging. They may not necessarily respond, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, even then you won't believe. 
at least they're alerted to the fact that God is judging the nation. Okay, one more. Next. Exactly. I would think that it would be limited in its use to Jews. That's why I don't think, you see, again, that it would have much application even among Jews today because most Jews are really just secular. They, they aren't looking for Messiah and they aren't looking for the signs that would indicate the coming of Messiah. So it's outlived its usefulness. And as a matter of fact, if you start reading the post-apostolic fathers from the time of Ignatius on, there is no reference anywhere in any of their writings to the gift of time. It simply ceased to exist after the apostles died. As far as we're able to tell. Well, let's stand together, shall we, and pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in supplying what we need to face life as it is. Thank you for the truth that, that you revealed in your word and your willingness to make yourself available to us in time of our need. Thank you that we can count on you no matter what the pressures are today and through this week. We don't need anything more, Father, than you and your life. You've given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.